passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, Welcome uh, to uh, the second to last week of our series looking at the afterlife. Uh, Over the past five weeks or so, we've been uh, hoping uh, that we've been cultivating a biblical view or a biblical vision of the afterlife, of what life is like after death. And that culminated last week as we looked at the new creation. And as we saw the new creation, we saw that really the new creation is a part of God's plan to bless his people by dwelling with them and to reign with them. And it's the plan that God has had from the very beginning of creation. And uh, hopefully we've answered a lot of questions that you may have had about the afterlife. Uh, But the reality is there are a ton of questions that still remain unanswered. We could uh, take this series on for another uh, several weeks or even months as we look at all of these different questions that we may have about the afterlife. And I think that the reason why we have so many questions is because it's actually biblical. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we see Solomon declare that God has written or placed eternity onto our hearts. The reason why we may have so many questions about the afterlife is because God created us that way. God created us with a yearning, with a desire to know what is to come. What this life, not just what this life will be like, but the life to come will be like. And so this morning we're going to do something that is uh, quite different from what we normally do. Over the past month or so, we've had some uh, cards in your bulletin where you could vote for different questions that you may be wondering, uh, that you might have about the afterlife, or you could write in some of your own questions. And this morning, instead of going through a passage of scripture, we're actually just going to answer some questions. We're going to look at some of the questions that you asked uh, for an answer to, to, and uh, we're going to do the same thing next week. And uh, because we can't answer all of them in two weeks, uh, we're going to answer a lot of the other ones online on our website. So if you check out your uh, sermon notes, you'll actually see a little link where you can go to check out uh, the rest of the questions for this week, as well as what we'll be looking at next week as well. So, as you can imagine, uh, this is going to be a very unique Sunday, Uh, and uh, unique can be a good thing, and if it's not a good thing, it'll just increase our expectancy for normalcy when we get to Colossians here in a few weeks. So, uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, jump into these questions and uh, see how it goes, and of course, the first question that uh, gets asked is the one that I dread the most, and if you look at your sermon notes, that is, what is the mark of the beast? And uh, before we uh, get into that, I'm going to give anyone and everyone the chance to leave right now if they don't want to listen to this. (laughs) Question, what is the mark of the beast? What does the number 666 mean? Uh, This is, of course, not a question on the afterlife, but it is a question that has to do with the end. Uh, It is a frequently asked question when it comes to the book of Revelation. Uh, It's found in Revelation chapter 13. If you do a quick Google search uh, for what is the mark of the beast, you'll come up with 22.8 million uh, responses. So uh, if you're wondering this question, you are not alone. And there are plenty of different uh, opinions uh, of what this uh, means for us. Uh, And so uh, the the way we're going to go ahead and and address this question is first, we're going to just talk about the book of Revelation as a whole and how we should understand the book of Revelation. 
The book of Revelation is a, a, a book that has um, uh, got a specific genre called apocalyptic literature. So if you look at all of the Bible, there are different genres in the Bible. You have uh, books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of those books are narrative. They tell stories about Jesus, and they all have a, a focus on, on the life of Jesus and, and how Jesus is the culmination of all of God's promises and how our salvation can be found in Jesus. There are also letters that are written to specific churches in the Bible, and of course we think of Paul's letters that are found in uh, the New Testament. The Bible is made up of poetry, specifically songs in the book of Psalms. It is made up of Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about God's coming judgment and his mercy and his grace as well. So there's tons of different genres that are found in the Bible. And then there's this one that's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is a very unique style of writing. It uh, developed within a couple hundred years before and after Jesus' life and his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. It was developed by the people of Israel uh, during a time of severe and intense persecution, uh, of intense oppression. And this genre is all focused on how we can have hope in the midst of of those difficult and dark times. Apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature looks toward the end, uses strange language, graphic imagery, difficult to understand pictures, and he uses all of these things to describe the end with a primary focus on right now. It's primarily focused on how we live right now, on our hope right now, on our confidence in God in this moment. I think that's important for us this morning because as we ask this question, as we ask what it means uh, when we talk about the mark of the beast or the number 666, it's important because while it does talk about the end, God is telling us those things so that we can be confident right now in our lives. We can be confident that God cares for us, that God is in control, not just of the past, but also of the future. And certainly God is in control of our lives at this moment, right now. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 is where this passage is found. Revelation 13 tells us not just of how Satan, uh, the serpent, or in this passage, the dragon, how the dragon works in the end of time, but also it tells us how he works right now, and even how he is at work in our communities and in this world to this day. Revelation 13 tells us that the serpent or the dragon is a great deceiver. It tells us that he desires the worship of God for his own. From the very beginning of time, the, the serpent has desired to be worshipped just like God and in fact to dethrone God. He wants to be God. And that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 13. The serpent is a counterfeit God. He's not a real God and yet he wants to be And as a part of his plan to enthrone himself, he follows the plan that God has had from the very beginning. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that the serpent creates a beast. And this beast, uh, you might say that this beast is the image of the invisible serpent 
just like Jesus is the invisible image of the invisible God, as Paul describes him in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 1 through 4 tell us that this beast is a false messiah, and he spends his life trying to convince people that he is the true messiah, that he is the chosen one, that he is the savior of the world, that he came to make all things right. And verses 5 through 8 tell us how he responds to those who are not deceived. Much of the world, as we see in verse 4, much of the world is deceived by this dragon and by this beast. And yet, for those who are not deceived, he responds with great wrath. That's why in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 13... The, uh, the, the passage tells those who are not de- deceived to endure, to persevere, to know what is coming because hard times are coming. And again, while this speaks to tomorrow, it speaks to uh, something that is to come, just notice for a second how this speaks to today as well. See, everyone is seeking after a Messiah. Everyone is seeking after someone to make all things right. They're seeking after hope, joy, peace. They're seeking after someone who will, who will bring an end to the conflict and the turmoil in their own hearts to make their lives better. And while they may not use the language of a Messiah, everyone is trying to place their messianic hope in, in someone or in something And unfortunately, the reality as we look around us is that much of the world is deceived. Much of the world worships a God not who is living and true and active and set apart from us, but they worship a God that they have created in their own image. While this passage does speak to the end, it also tells us of what life is like today, doesn't it? As you continue looking at Revelation chapter 13, it tells us about this mark that the beast gives to his followers. Take a look at verses 16 through 18. It says this, Also it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. But the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. What is the mark? What is the mark of the beast? What does the number 666 mean? That's, That's the question that was asked, and I'll just give you the answer right now. I don't know. I don't think the Bible tells us specifically of what the the mark is going to be. I do know from this passage, and we'll talk about this here in just a second, this is a mark of allegiance. It is a declaration of where your allegiance lies. Does it lie with God? Does it lie with Christ? Or does it lie with the world and with the beast and with the dragon? We should be very clear that when we stand before God's throne, none of us will find ourselves on the wrong end of things because we accidentally signed up for a new credit card that ended up being the mark of the beast. This is an intentional declaration or rejection of God and allegiance to the world, to the dragon, and to the beast. Revelation chapter 7 
uh, helps us to understand what this mark is. It says this, an angel says this, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Revelation 7, God is sealing his people. He's putting a mark on them to declare that they belong to him, that they are his children. And then we get to Revelation 13, and the dragon is doing the exact same thing. We can go back even further, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is telling the people of Israel how they are to remember the word of God, that they were to store it up in their own hearts. And it says this, you shall bind them, them being the law of God, the commands of God, the statute of God, the word of God. You shall bind the word of God as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So you compare that passage with Deuteronomy chapter 13, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 13. Deuteronomy 6 says you are supposed to take God's word and it's supposed to be so close to you that you're supposed to put it on your hand and you're supposed to put it on your forehead. And you get to Revelation 13 and the, the hatred that the dragon has for God is so great that he takes his own mark of allegiance and he places it where God's word is supposed to be. He places it on the forehead of his followers and he places it on the hand of his followers. And I think today too we can just pause. Now there there might not be a, a specific mark. There's not a specific mark that people bear that, that declares that they belong to God or, or belong to the dragon. But the reality is all of us are sealed in one way. The seal is a declaration, the mark is a declaration of your allegiance. Does your allegiance belong to the lamb? Or does it belong to the dragon? That's the question that each and every one of us has to ask. Yes, there's not a specific mark that we have to worry about right now. But are you seeking after a false messiah? Placing your hope and your trust in a place where it should not be. Are you being deceived? Or are you sealed by the Lamb? You see, this dragon is a counterfeit God in every way. He mimics God. He perverts the good things of God. The number 666 is just an example of that. In Jewish thought, the number 777 is perfect, uh, it's perfect, it's complete. And here we see that the number of the dragon is imperfect in every way, falling short of God in every way. Friends, the, the seal or the way of the dragon will not satisfy. Will you seek the way of the Lamb? Let's look at another question here. Uh, Next question is um, uh, completely changing gears. How will we relate to our families in heaven? Another way of asking this question is uh, we we know from what Jesus has said in the Bible that we will not be married in heaven. Um, So how can we have hope and joy and look forward to heaven if we're not going to be married to our spouse? And I think this is a great question. 
because uh, last week we talked about the new creation, and we talked about how good it is going to be, how perfect it's going to be, our relationship with God, and yet we come to Jesus's words in Luke chapter 20, and we see this. The sons of this age marry and are given to marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, as a man who loves his wife very much, uh, who loves his children very much, I I can read that and I can say, well, how is that an improvement on this life? How is that really something that I can look forward to? What is is it about the new creation that we, we aren't married in that life? So let's try to understand the reason why there will be no marriage in the new creation. And the real answer is, is that there will be. There will be marriage in the new creation, and all of us, whether we are married or single or divorced or widowed, every single person who is a part of God's new creation will be married as a part of the church to Christ himself. The reality is, as we look at the New Testament, is the New Testament describes marriage as a signpost pointing us toward that day, the relationship that we were meant for for, that we were created for, and that is the relationship between God, between Christ, and his church. Ephesians chapter 5 is a very important passage when it talks about marriage. Ephesians 5, uh, I want to just read this brief excerpt here because it describes how we are to view marriage today. Paul starts this section that I'm about to quote with a, with a, with a quote from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 was talking about the marriage between Adam and Eve, and and, um, by uh, following that train of thought, it also talks about all earthly marriage. And Paul says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the quote from Genesis 2. And then he says this, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul looks at this passage that describes earthly marriage and he says, this mystery is profound and it's ultimately about Christ and the church. Paul is telling us that the, uh, the marriage of this life is just a signpost that points us to what we were meant for in the life to come. See, the reason why earthly marriage will not be present in the new creation is because the real thing will be there. I want you to imagine that you are from the Midwest and you've never seen the ocean and the greatest desire of your heart is to see the ocean. You do all you can to get there, but you never actually make it there. And so one day you just settle for a picture of the ocean. And you hold the the picture up and you look at it every single day. It's a beautiful picture. It's a gorgeous picture. It gives you so much joy just looking at the beauty of that picture. Years go by, and then one day, you take a job that transfers you to the Californian coast. You are given a, as a perk of the job, you are given a house that is found right there on the ocean in Big Sur country on the central Californian coast. And every single night, you can go outside onto your little deck, and you can experience the picture that you have held so dear your entire life with all of your senses. 
You can taste the water. You can smell the salt. You can feel the mist of the ocean. You can hear the waves crash. And of course, you're seeing it. Who in their right mind would continue to stare at that picture when all of the beauty of the real thing is right in front of you? We marvel at the picture. We we are so thankful for the picture, but the real thing is before us. And that's a lot like what marriage is like in this life and in the life to come. It is a signpost. It's a picture of the real thing that we are about to experience. So what does that mean for our families? Well, we should recognize that Genesis 2 tells us that we are created for relationship. Not just with God, but with one another. Genesis 2, 18 tells us that God says it's not good for humans to be alone. And he's not just talking about relationship with him. He's saying there should be other humans. So when we look at the the idea of family in the new creation, we should realize that there's going to be family. It's going to be one big family. And it's hard to imagine that the, the good, wonderful, perfect father that we have would deprive us of the relationships that we've cherished so much here in this life. One author writes it this way, if I knew that never again would I recognize that beloved one with whom I had spent more than 39 years here on earth, my anticipation of heaven would much abate. To say that we shall be with Christ and that will be enough is to claim that we shall be without the social instincts, the affections that mean so much to us here Life beyond cannot mean impoverishment, but enhancement and enrichment of life as we have known it here at its best. It is far more likely that you will spend all eternity being ever more closer to your family than you are now. We could spend a lot more time talking about this. We could spend a lot more time just talking about the day-to-day life in the new creation. But I just want to pause and say, this is why this is so good. This is such good news for us. Because this question, uh, what, will, what will our family life be like in the new creation? It really betrays a good family life here. It, it assumes a, a good family life here and now. For the person who comes from a broken family, whether that's a divorce, and they wrestle through whether the divorce is their fault or their spouse's fault, or it's both of their faults. For the person who has kids that are estranged from them. The idea of a good family life or no family in the new creation is something that just might seem foreign to them. But the idea of a loving, good, perfect family Man, that's a good gift for all of us. No matter what our life is like here and now, we can be confident that we're not missing out on anything in this life because of the goodness that God has in store for each and every one of us. Not just in relationship with him, but also in relationship with one another. Let's look at another question. Will Christians who commit suicide be in heaven? Uh, what a What a very sensitive, difficult topic because of what seems to be the increasing frequency of suicide, especially among our youth today. 
when I lived in Chicago, I worked for a church, and I wasn't a pastor there, but one of the women who attended this church, uh, her, her teenage son committed suicide. And uh, just a, a week after that had happened, she came into the church, and the first time I ever talked to her was as she was uh, in this grieving process. And we talked about this question. We talked about, wrestled through the questions of suicide and whether it is possible for Christians to commit suicide and still go to heaven. And some say it's a mortal sin. Uh, some say that it's the unforgivable sin. Uh, but the Bible says what I think is something different. You see, the Bible never explicitly addresses suicide and prohibits it, uh, but it does talk about it implicitly. It doesn't mince words about suicide. It says that it would be a violation of the sixth commandment, the commandment to not murder. It describes suicide as an act of unbelief, an act of, of playing God. There are at least five examples in the Bible of suicide, uh, all in the context of shame and defeat. Look at the end of 1 Samuel and, and Saul's suicide, or at the end of the Gospels and Judas Iscariot's suicide. The Bible has examples where characters in the Bible ask God to take their own life, but God never acquiesces to that request. So the Bible describes suicide as a sin, but nowhere in the Bible does it describe it as an unforgivable sin. In fact, we can gain comfort from those who had those suicidal thoughts. It's interesting if you look at those who ask God to take their own life. They're Moses, Job, Elijah, and Jonah. Four righteous men, many of them prophets. And we can gain comfort from these who struggled with suicidal thoughts to see that even the most godly people can struggle with these types of thoughts, and that there is hope. You see, for the Christian who commits suicide, uh, that, that's a, a temporary loss of identity, that they are a child of God, that they are a chosen one of God, that God loves them, that God has purchased them, that God has adopted them into their family, into his family. And it's a, it's a, it's a loss of perspective, it's a loss of perspective of God's grand plan of redemption that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glories that are set before us. But God is greater than our sin. God is greater than our struggles. You see, confusion, a lack of hope, doesn't mean that a person is not a Christian any more than when we are confused, when we lose our hope. Yes, on a lesser scale, but each and every day we lose perspective. We forget our identity of who we are in Christ. And it doesn't matter how our last breath is spent because we are saved by the blood of Christ and not by our works. It doesn't matter whether our last moment is triumphant or tragic. It does not matter because God is greater than our sins, even those that grip us in our final breath. And this is not just true for suicide. It's also true for those who struggle with addiction, those who struggle with sinful relapses. God is greater than our sin. And the reminder that, that the scriptures tell us over and over again is it is not 
our faithfulness to Christ, but it is Christ's faithfulness to his Father that saves us. It is not our, fa- our faithfulness to Christ, but it is Christ's faithfulness to his Father that saves us. Yes, we have faith in the, the atoning work of Christ, what God has done for us. We repent of our sins. We try to follow him, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it is not our works that save us, but it is Christ who saves us. It is not our faithfulness, our obedience that saves us, but Christ's obedience. One final question this morning. Another difficult one. How does God judge someone who hasn't heard about Jesus? How many of you have been asked this question before? Or how many of you have wrestled with this question on your own? It's a, it's a very difficult question, and yet in one sense, it's also very simple. How will God judge those who haven't heard of Jesus? So the answer is, he will judge fairly. Two weeks ago, we looked at passages of Scripture that indicated that God will judge those who have little knowledge, who have not heard the gospel, uh, and still do what is wrong to a lesser degree than those who do know and still sin. Jesus mentions this time and time again in the Gospels. David Platt is the director of the International Mission Board, and he was once asked this question. He was asked the question, what about the uh, uh, innocent man in Africa who has never heard about Jesus? And he responded by saying, well, I can tell you with 100% confidence that the innocent man in Africa who has never heard about Jesus will go to heaven. The problem is there is no innocent man in Africa. There is no innocent man in Asia. There's no innocent person in South America or North America or Europe or Australia or any place on the planet. Romans chapter 2 describes the fact that we are not judged uh, because we don't respond to a Messiah we've never heard of, but because we've broken the law of God that is written on our hearts. Romans 2 says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, there are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, Christ Jesus, excuse me, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. People are, are judged by how they reject the law written on their hearts, not on whether they respond to a Messiah that they have never heard of. But if we're being honest with ourselves... That still can seem unfair, can't it? It can seem unfair that how was I lucky enough to be born into a context where I was able to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel? We had a baby dedication this morning. How is it that someone can be so lucky to be born into a Christian family where there are those on the other side of the planet who don't have that luxury? Why are we so lucky? That question, uh, I think, tells us two things. First, it emphasizes the great need for us to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. There is indeed a great urgency to, to fulfill the Great Commission, to share the gospel, to tell others about the gospel. Paul declares in Romans chapter 10, how can they believe if they have not heard? There is a great urgency that we must have when it comes to the spread of the gospel. And yet, at the same time, I think that this question of, of why is it, how, how can it be fair that I've heard the gospel and someone else hasn't? I think that, that underestimates God's sovereignty. It underestimates God's sovereignty in bringing salvation to those who would believe. 
Acts chapter 10 is a beautiful chapter, powerful chapter that really speaks into this. Acts 10, we can't read the the whole thing, but we're just going to read the beginning here. It describes Cornelius. Cornelius is this godly man, a Gentile, who is earnestly seeking God. But that's not good enough. Let's take a look at the first eight verses here of Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. The rest of chapter 10 tells us about how God brings the gospel through Peter to Cornelius. It describes Cornelius as this wonderful man who is earnestly seeking God, and yet that is not enough. It's not enough to earnestly seek God. He needs the gospel. And yet, God is merciful to Cornelius. He says, Cornelius, I've seen what you've been doing. I've seen how you are earnestly seeking me. Your prayers have been answered. And then he sends Peter. He sends Peter to bring the gospel to Cornelius, and Cornelius gathers his his family, and he gathers his friends into his household so that they can all hear the gospel, and the gospel is brought to this Gentile, and faith, repentance, salvation, don't underestimate God's ability to bring the gospel to those who are earnestly seeking him. You see, the reality is God is, is acting the exact same way today as well. A friend of mine shared this story, a true story from just two weeks ago uh, in Athens, Greece, among the refugee community there. A strong Muslim woman had come to the refugee center for the past, past few months and was always defensive of her religion. On Monday, August 28th, she came into the center and asked the leader, have you ever had a dream about Jesus? The leader said that he had, and that if she had, it meant that God was pursuing her. She explained her dream. A woman had come to her holding a cup, and the Muslim woman asked to hear about Jesus. But the woman with the cup simply said, you must drink from the cup if you want to know Jesus. After she relayed this dream to the leader, the leader shared this simple truth with her. We must drink from the cup of Jesus. We must know how he has shed his blood for us. And that cup is free to drink from. And then he proceeded to share the gospel with her. She became a Christian right then and there. Those who earnestly seek God, God is gracious. God is merciful. Don't underestimate God's sovereignty to bringing salvation to those who in our eyes and our thoughts and our minds doesn't look like they have any access to the gospel because God is astoundingly merciful 
He intervenes in Cornelius' life. He intervenes in this woman's life and these stories and more. It's not, it's not enough to, to want to desire to seek God. The gospel is needed. Jesus is needed. You see, God is great and merciful. And that mercy is for all. But it's found in Jesus alone. And I think that's an appropriate way to end this morning. You can see what we'll be looking at next week. You can see what questions we have online. But what a great way to end. That we are saved by the mercy of God, found in Jesus alone. And as we think about our future, won't you cling to that beautiful gift? Won't you cling to the beautiful gift of the mercy of God? It gives assurance to us in the midst of doubt. That saves us in the midst of our own sin. That gives us confidence to share the gospel with others. And that can transform our hearts and our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for all that you do for us. The mercy that you have for us. And God, this morning, for those who haven't experienced that mercy, who haven't turned their hearts to you, we ask that even now, you would be at work in their hearts, turning them to you, God, that your spirit would be convicting them of their sin, and that they would turn their hearts and their minds to what you have done for us taking our sin and shame on the cross that we could have eternity with you. God, help us to trust in the mercy, trust in the grace that Christ offers us on the cross, a free gift that we would just receive. Just like that woman in that dream, it is a free cup, but we must drink it. Help us now, O God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.